Hey guys, thanks heaps for listening. And apologies to interrupt my three-part rabbit hole dig on three-syllable artists singing three-syllable songs. But I had been working on my second episode of the series. So part three of 3 by 3 will be next week. About six weeks ago, I dropped episode one of the series, which was a deep dig on Dalamitri and Justin Curry. And for episode two, I'm going to focus on ACDC up until Bon Scott's death in 1980. Hopefully this inspires someone to check out some great music and hear a bit of ACDC's stories as filtered through my one good ear. And if not, that's cool too, and I don't really give a shit, as I learn a bunch of stuff and it was great climbing up ACDC's hole for a few weeks. I appreciate you checking out the podcast. And if you are new here, check out the website, arockandrollrabbithole.com, as I have about 30 or so episodes up there and six bonus episodes and all the Spotify playlists of the songs used in each episode and heaps of other golden-coated magical nuggets. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast if you're digging it. And you can follow the podcast on Instagram and Facebook, arockandrollrabbitholepodcast. So that's enough fluff. Thanks again, and here goes. So that was a bit of rock and roll singer from TNT, and I think it was the first ACDC song that I ever heard when a friend of mine played that section of the song and Pink Floyd's song Money, just because they both had the word shit in them. We were probably eight or nine at the time, and Pink Floyd didn't really make a mark on me, but ACDC did. Something about the guitars and definitely the singer seemed very dangerous and I wanted more. I can recall looking at my buddy's dad's vinyl copy of TNT and the badly typed lyrics with the mistakes X'd out, the fake police cards for each band member, and seeing the word shit typed out was kind of thrilling to a peanut-brained pre-teenager. And I love Bon Scott's funny use of language like... Somehow I got a cassette of TNT and that was one of my only tapes for years so naturally I wore it out and it started my love for ACDC, especially for the Bon Scott years. I do love Brian Johnson too but something about the Bon Scott era has stuck in my DNA and that's why I've chosen to do this episode. the ACDC story, I want to quickly chat about the winter of 1962-63 in the UK. Hang in there with me, it will make sense in a minute. That winter was called the Big Freeze of 63, 
Records dating back to 1659 recorded that only the winters of 1683 and 84 and 1739 and 40 were colder. And if you're in Scotland, I'm happy to report that 2009-10 was equally as cold as the 1962-1963 winter. Anyway, due to the cold snap, a Scottish TV advertisement offered assisted travel for families to move to Australia and 15 members of the Young family left Scotland bound for Sydney, Australia in June 1963, including George Young, 17, Malcolm Young, 10 and Angus, 8. The family landed at the Villawood Migrant Hostel and it was here that George befriended another migrant kid, Harry Vander. We'll get back to Harry and George in a minute. The Young family then moved to 4 Burley Street in Burwood, a suburb of Sydney. I googled the property and kind of fitting now, it's a hearing loss centre called Here Now. So by late 1964, Harry and George had formed the Easy Beats with three other immigrant kids from the UK and Holland. The Easy Beats lasted for six years and had 15 top 40 hits in Australia, including Friday On My Mind, written by Harry and George. Monday morning feels so bad Everybody seems to nag Coming Tuesday I feel better Even my old man looks good Wednesday just don't go The Easy Beats broke up in 1970, and let's jump now to 1973. Harry Vander and George Young enlist George's younger brothers, Malcolm and Angus, and they form the Marcus Hook Roll Band. There was nobody in the band called Marcus Hook, and I googled it, and there's a borough in Delaware County, Pennsylvania, but I'm not sure if it's related to why the lads chose that name. Anyway, the band released one album called Tales of Old Granddaddy, and two of the songs had riffs that later evolved into ACDC songs. first one was called Quick Reaction, which had a little bit of TNT. Natural man evolved into a little bit of live wire. Businessman and politicians, union bosses, statisticians. Oh, what do they do for you? Science fiction, dereliction, not forgetting drug addiction. The band, according to George, was the first thing Malcolm and Angus did before ACDC. We didn't take it very seriously, so we thought we'd include them to give them an idea of what recording was all about. Angus was 18 and Malcolm was 20. Also in 1973, Harry and George wrote and produced a huge song for their Easy Beat singer, Stevie Wright, called Evie. See episode two's Girls Names for that story, and Malcolm played rhythm guitar on the song. 
So late in 1973, Malcolm and Angus formed ACDC with bass player Larry Van Crite and singer Dave Evans and former Masters Apprentice drummer Colin Burgess. The name ACDC was inspired by Malcolm and Angus's sister Margaret's sewing machine. Despite in the 80s, many scared mums were being spoon-fed it was Antichrist Devil's Child. Here's Angus defending these cock goblin thoughts in the 80s related to the ACDC song Night Prowler being used as one of the reasons for serial killer Richard Ramirez. ACDC, some people say that stands for Antichrist Devil's Child. Does it? It came from the back of my sister's sewing machine. <laughs> sewing machine? Yeah. You know, it's on any electrical appliance. It's power. It just means power. ACDC booked their first gig to play at Checkers Nightclub in Sydney on New Year's Eve in 1973. By this time, Angus was wearing, among others, his schoolboy costume, and the rest of the band were wearing typical glam satin outfits at the time. Around this time, Angus had also tried other costumes, such as Spider-Man, Zorro, a gorilla, and a parody of Superman named Super Ang. I've heard a heap of stories that Angus wore the school uniform straight from school to gigs and just kept wearing it later in his career. But in my research, Angus dropped out of Ashfield Boys High School, aged 15, and ACDC was formed when he was 18. A lot of stuff on the internet also says that Angus had locked in the schoolboy costume by 1973. If you check out the Golden Magic tab on my website, arockandrollrabbithole.com, I have a link there to some photos and a bit of a story about him wearing other costumes way later than 1973. I'm jumping forward here, but ACDC performed Baby Please Don't Go on Aussie TV show Countdown on four occasions. The first time was on the 29th of November 1974, and Angus was dressed as an aviation pioneer with a homemade-looking plane with an Aussie flag on it. There's no actual footage of this, but there's a photo on the link I mentioned. The second time was the 20th of December 1974 and Angus was dressed as Zorro. The third time, both Angus and Bond were dressed as school kids. Angus in a blue schoolboy uniform and Bond dressed as a cigarette smoking schoolgirl. That was on the 23rd of the 3rd, 1975. And the fourth time they played Baby Please Don't Go on Countdown was the 25th of May 1975 and Angus was dressed as his Super Ang character. So I'm guessing that he landed on the schoolboy suit in or after 1975. She gave me the school suit because she said, you know, Angus would look, you know, because he'd look cute, you know, running around in the school suit. <laughs> and they told me I'd, be, I'd get rich quick, you know. <laughs> and George says, you know what, we'll bill you as a nine-year-old. I said, I'm not nine. <laughs> he said, yeah, but we'll say that you're only nine years old and, you know. And you, you know, you, you're a prodigy. You'll only have to do a couple of shows, and we'll, we'll make such a big, big mystery of it. You know, and here I am, still doing it. Some of these early countdown performances are actually missing, or they've only got quick snippets, as the government-run ABC TV network would often tape over content. As ACDC and Countdown weren't the huge juggernauts they both went on to become yet. Anyway, got a little bit sidetracked there. So let's get back to the first gig on New Year's Eve, 1973. In the early days, ACDC were managed by Dennis Laughlin, who was the original lead singer for Aussie band Sherbet before Daryl Braithwaite joined. Dennis occasionally also sang for ACDC, and apparently Dennis and singer Dave Evans didn't get along, which is rumoured to have contributed to the band's ill feeling towards Evans. Years later, Dave Evans stated that jealousy and a physical altercation with Dennis as big factors of him moving on or being moved on from the band. Yeah, um, Malcolm... You know, we were very close and uh, we wrote songs together and we used to hang out together. But he, he did get a little bit jealous, really. Uh, not with me, Colin Burgess first up. Colin was already a big star. And, you know, he'd, he'd walk into a, 
into a club with a girl on each arm, you know, and I thought that was great. <laughs> I thought that was great, something to aspire to. And uh, but Malcolm didn't really like it. He's, he's a bit jealous. And uh, after Colin left the band, he, he was, you know, he's a bit that way towards me. It was just sad because I thought a lot of Malcolm. Uh, but that wasn't the reason. The reason why I split from the band was because we had a hit record and we were uh, doing the, so many shows. Sometimes we were doing three shows a day, lunchtime, early and late. You know? And uh, we were on TV, on radio, on, our record was on the hour, every hour. Was, you know, but we weren't getting any money. The manager, we, our third manager at that stage, um, we were pretty unhappy with him. And because you know, I still had to pay rent at my apartment back in Sydney, I was paying off a car, working my ass off, and, um, and not getting any, any money. So we had a meeting one, one night, and uh, he smart-mouthed me, so I bashed him up one, poof, like that. So I got stuck into him anyway, and... Uh, the manager. The manager. Not got, the band. No, not the band. The manager got stuck into the manager, and it was pulled apart pretty quickly. No, nobody really got hurt. Um, but I'd had enough and I, I left the band then. But next morning we sort of sobered up and we had so many shows to do. Uh, we had to go to Perth, it was number five or something in the charts over there. So we decided to stay together until the end of, the, of that tour, which we did. We had a meeting and I said, I ain't, I ain't leaving Sydney unless I get guaranteed X amount per week, I don't care. It had to be something. So you did get paid and you did no, stay? No, I didn't get paid. So Nothing. No, well, we got enough for a few hamburgers every now and again, yeah. We were at a Wimpy Burger in, in, in Adelaide, and um, our manager's flying around the country somewhere, and we just said, we took whatever we had in our pockets out, put it on the table, plop, 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 and we just divided it into five, and we went and bought a hamburger each or something like that. And we were, had a hit record on our hands, so what, I wasn't very happy with that. So the real reason came down to economics at the end of the day, and at the end of the meeting, I, I couldn't be satisfied that I was going to get any money. None of us were. Uh, so that's, that's what happened. Here's Malcolm talking about Dave Evans. You know, he'd go on with his makeup and he'd maybe even blow on kisses. We just grew and grew, not like Anyway, by mid-1974, the band had built up a strong live following and opened up for Lou Reed and recorded one single written by Malcolm and Angus called Can I Sit Next to You, Girl? which had the before-mentioned lineup, but George Young played bass. And here's a little bit of Can I Sit Next to You, Girl. Sit Next to You Girl made it to number 50 in the Australian charts in 1974. So in 1974, on the recommendation of Michael Chugg, who's a veteran Melbourne promoter, 
Michael Browning booked ACDC to play at his club called The Hard Rock in Melbourne. He didn't really like their glam rock image, but was very impressed with the young brother's guitar work. Just a side rabbit hole on Michael Chug. He was the owner of Frontier Touring and later Michael Chug Entertainment. And if you've been to any big rock shows in Melbourne in the last 30 years, he's the big guy that comes out before the gig for the crowd is rowdy and shouts, hey, you dickhead in the black shirt, stop pushing. Anyway, a wee bit after ACDC played at Hard Rock, the band called the owner, Michael Browning, saying that their manager had quit and they were stuck in Adelaide with no money. Michael Browning agreed to bail them out and book them for another gig at the Hard Rock. After the gig, he agreed to manage the band with some help from George and Harry. The Young Brothers then moved to Melbourne and changed their glam rock image, which was a death nail for Dave Evans. Let's pop a fork in this story and jump over to Scotland again, where in 1952, a six-year-old Ronald Belford Scott moved from Scotland to what I imagine sounded lovely, Sunshine Victoria. For those of you not in Melbourne, Sunshine until recently was a bit of a shithole part of Melbourne about 12 kilometres west of the city. Some might still argue that it's a shithole. Anyway, at school, Ronald got the name Bon because there was another Ronald in his class. They yanked it from the phrase, Bonnie Scotland. In 1956, the Scott family moved to Fremantle on the other side of Australia. And Bon joined the Fremantle Scots pipe band, learning the drums. And like Angus, he dropped out of school aged 15. In 1963, he spent a short time in Riverbank Juvenile Institution, relating to charges of giving a false name and address to police, escaping legal custody, having unlawful carnal knowledge, and stealing 12 gallons of petrol. Sounds like a pirate. He tried to join the Australian Army, but was denied and deemed socially maladjusted. Bond formed his first band in 1964 called The Spectres as the half drummer and half lead singer, where he would swap positions with John Collins. They were mainly a cover band doing Stones, Beatles, Them, The Kinks, etc. Here's the band doing Gloria on some TV broadcast. Right now, John Collins uh, is going to take up the drums position and the drummer, Bon Scott, who we spoke to a little bit earlier on Jukebox Jury, is going to be singing a song and it's a number called Gloria. So here they are, John Collins and the Spectres and Gloria. Spectres lasted until late 66. Then guitarist Wynne Milsom and Bon formed a band called The Valentines, where Bon was the co-lead singer with Vince Lovegrove, who later managed the Divinals. In 1967, the band moved from Western Australia to Melbourne and lasted until about 1970 when they split up. Partly due to the bubblegum pop they were playing was losing its appeal. And also Bon had a publicised drug bust in the Victorian coastal town of Janjuk. This was actually the first major band drug scandal in Australia, which made the national news, and Bond stood his ground with the media, stating that pot should be legalised and police should keep to themselves. That was 50 years ago and not much has changed out here. 
Anyway, the band broke up and Bond moved to Adelaide in 1970 and joined a band called Fraternity from 1971 to 1973. A way different sound to the last band. And here's Bond on lead recorder and vocals and we can finally start to hear Bond's later voice coming through. Seasons of Change by Fraternity. briefly replaced in fraternity by Jimmy Barnes, who left to join a harder-edged band called Orange, featuring Don Walker, Ian Moss, Steve Presswich, which later changed their name to Cold Chisel, which ended up being one of Australia's biggest bands in the late 70s and 80s. Fraternity with Bon released two albums and toured the UK in 1973 under the name Fang, an open for Status Quo and Geordie, featuring future ACDC singer Brian Johnson. And here's Angus telling a bit of that story. Scott was the original singer in ACDC. Yeah. And he saw Brian singing in a bar somewhere. Yes. And he turned to you, Angus, and he said, you know what? If anything ever happens to me, that's the guy you should get to sing in (laughs) ACDC. Is that a true story? Well, he didn't say exactly that's the guy to to get me, but what he he pointed out, you know, was he was a big fan of Little Richard. Right. And he said, uh, you know, for for Bond, Little Richard was the marker for singing. Right. And when... uh, Bond had been in Britain opening for an act that Brian was... Uh, he was in a band called Geordie. And, right. And, and Bond's band were opening for them. And Bond told us through, he said, uh, he saw this guy, uh, like, you know, in his band, Geordie, the lead singer, and he said, and, uh, hey, he was really great. He had the, he, he had the little Richard Chops. Right. Which uh-huh. he really dug, and he said... And then he said, what was really cool, though, he says... Here's this guy screaming at the top of his lungs, and then he hits the floor, and he's <laughs> going in circles. And it's like a rabid dog. And, yeah. and Bond thought it was the greatest act he ever saw. Right. You know? Yeah. And then it, at the end of the at the end of the end of the gig, Bond walked to the you know to the backstage, and they had an ambulance waiting. Brian had an attack on appendicitis. In 1974, Bond Scott was seriously injured in a motorcycle accident and broke his arm, his leg and his nose. And I'm not sure if this story is true because I read a lot of different stuff around this time, but one story said that after Dave Evans left the band, Vince Lovegrove from Fraternity and Bond had seen ACDC perform in Adelaide in August 74 and the band were playing instrumental versions and Bond got up and sang a few songs with them. But that could be bullshit, I'm not 100% sure, because there's so many different stories about when he first met the band. But in September 74, Bon Scott moved to Sydney and replaced Dave Evans as ACDC's lead singer, and that's where our two stories meet. 
Do you want to join? Without even playing with the guy. That's how confident we were that uh, he was going to work. Job I had was um, I was a chauffeur for this band before I joined. You know? yeah. I, had a, I was in between bands, and, and a friend of mine back in Adelaide in South Australia had uh, an agency and uh, bringing bands from interstate over there. You know? And I had I didn't have a gig, and I said, he said I'll pay you ten do ten dollars a night to um, drive bands to the gig and back. You know, so um, this was the first band I worked with. You know. <laughs> And they knew I was sort of, you know, a screamer, and they knew I was out of work. So, and they hated the guy they had singing for them then. So they off I got on so well with them, they offered me a job. Have you always wanted to be a rock and roll singer? Or did it just happen? I always knew I was something other than a worker, you know? The band re-recorded Can I Sit Next to You, Girl, with Bon Scott singing, and hit the studio in November 1974 to record their first album, High Voltage. Just a quick note on high voltage, I'm talking about the Australian version with the power box and the dog pissing on it, as in 1976 they would re-release high voltage internationally with songs from high voltage and ACDC's second Australian album TNT. The lineup was a bit loose at that time with Angus, Malcolm and Bon, and George Young playing some bass as well as Rob Bailey, and three drummers playing on varied tracks, Peter Clack, John Proud and Tony Carenti. The album had eight tracks written by Angus, Malcolm and Bon. One track, Soul Stripper, written by Angus and Malcolm, and one cover, Baby Please Don't Go. And Baby Please Don't Go and a song called Love Song were released as the only single on the 3rd of March, 1975. And it's interesting to listen to Love Song. It sort of has a thunderstrucky vibe guitar riff in the intro. Let's check it out here. Another interesting point on High Voltage, Malcolm Young plays a few guitar solos, including this one on a song called Little Lover, which sounds very much like Angus.
So Malcolm Young plays four or five guitar solos on high voltage and then retreated to rhythm guitar for the next 15 albums. High Voltage made it to number 14 in the Australian charts. The band hit the studio again in March 1975 to record the TNT album. And by this time, Mark Evans and Phil Rudd, both from Melbourne, had joined the band and solidified the ACDC sound. Here's Phil Rudd talking about his audition. Oh, the band, they just had the first album come out, High Voltage. And um, so they were playing a few tracks off that. And... Um, I hadn't been really doing much for a few months and um, when I heard about it, I just w- went around there and there was a kid around there and had a bit of a, bit of a bash on that. And, and uh, we, we seemed to hook up pretty well from the start. I was, I was pretty energetic and kind of, you know, charging along there. So <laughs> I kind of liked, liked my sort of thing, you know. And, um, yeah, I just got on on that basis ever since, really. We were touring it when I first joined the band. It was only, only a few weeks in, and we did that big festival in Melbourne, Sunbury, with uh, the famous Deep Purple show uh, in the mud. And here's bass player Mark Evans talking about that time. Uh, the band got new management. Michael Browning took over and, and moved the band to Melbourne, which was a hot spot for live music then. So there's a lot of things came together at the one time. The, the, the line-up that didn't record high voltage you know, came together with Phil joined uh, in Melbourne in January or February and I joined a month later. So everything sort of come together at once. Countdown had just started. Colour TV had just come in. So there was all these sort of things that lined up. And, you know, I think if you have a successful band, you've, you've got to be prepared, but you've certainly, the opportunity's got to come along, which that's where the luck comes into it, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I, I think it was, everything just come together at once. And uh, that's what helped the band grow so quickly because it took off like a rocket like we went from like playing 10 to 15 people a night to like you know playing to the, the big beer barns in melbourne like matthew playing to a thousand people a night and doing three of those a night you know all within a couple of months and that had a lot to do with countdown and meldrum getting behind the band. molly got behind the band and pushed the band to an amazing degree you know he he they financed and shot those uh, the long way to the top video the jailbreak video they did that off their own bat. The ABC just did that, you know. And uh, so they were incredibly supportive. So all those things came together and boom, off it went. A few of the older songs on TNT had other players, including the single High Voltage, which had Tony Carenti on drums. It's a little confusing because the first record was called High Voltage, but the song High Voltage was off TNT. Anyway, TNT was released in Australia and New Zealand on the 1st of December 1975 and it had three singles, High Voltage, TNT and A Long Way to the Top if you want to rock and roll.
Here's Mark Evans again talking about how the bagpipes made it into that song. Yeah, well, it's a great idea. It's a, and, and, and we recorded that that song a uh, long way to the top, and that was um, pretty much you know how we would record. We, we, Malcolm, Malcolm was got this groove going, and and George said, "Listen, you know, wait a minute, you know, got the tape going, and it would basically come out of a you know like a jam that we did." And um, George, you know, overnight sort of worked on it and did a fair bit of editing because George is, you know, like amazing. He'd be in front of the, the tape machine, cutting bits out, and like a tailor around here and putting that back in there. And uh, he, he basically you know, did, a, did a job on that and, and put it together because you'll, you'll note, um, even with the guitar, from the guitar intro to how the guitar is at the end, it's very, very, very different. It, it flows. It works well. And it works well because of George. He's just, you know, that's where it's... So anyway, um, George suggested it needed something in the middle. He suggested bagpipes. And Bond said, great. You know, I used to play in a pipe band. Oh, did that. Fantastic. So Bond said, I'll be back. So we went down to a music shop down the road in Park Street. You know, bagpipes are us. Well, I don't know what it was called. <laughs> and... Uh, I uh, put this set of hardy pipes. It was, I even remember they were four hundred and seventy-nine dollars, which was like back in those days. You know, um, yeah, a, a normal Joe Schmo was probably picking up a hundred bucks a week. Mm. So, an offender Stratton against and those ball were like three hundred. Oh yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah. Well, it was probably you would have got two strats. Yeah. For, for the, so there yeah, So he's got this this box. Hey, I've got the pipes. Okay. Now, if you want a good laugh, man, you get three Scott together around trying to put a set of bagpipes together. <laughs> oh, man, it's like a Scottish Scottish Rubik's cube, <laughs> and they're swearing and oh man, and they say George said to mine, said listen, yeah, yeah, you're playing the pipe band, you know, yeah, yeah. He went, what's going? On? He said yeah, well, yeah, he played the pipe band. I was a drummer. <laughs> so that was it. Oh, man. So we, we end up getting the pipes together. We end up getting the team. We recorded. We got the, got the, the drones. We end up blowing those individually in a tape loop. And then one got the chanter because he used to play flute or, or recorder and stuff. Oh, and yes, it, I remember him in that fraternity. Yeah, you play, you play the recorder. So he, he, he got, got the notes out and... Um, we made a tape loop, and then at the start of it, there's a, you know, we hold on to the tape, let it go, so it's just... You know. So it's, it's all George, it's, it's George's stuff, you know. It came a bit of a hassle when we were working live, because we'd have to tune up to the, the drone. So poor old Ralph, the front of the house guy, if we had the cassette by, we're backstage, tune up to the drone, out the front, put the drone, OK, hit the drone now for this, and bond it at the channel, oh, man. So in essence, it sort of cruelled us from playing the song much live. And, you know, from my memory, I would say um, we probably played this song live maybe 30 times most, and the band's never played it since then. So it's such, a, it's, it's, it's such a, an odd thing. It's, it's, it's converse because it's such an iconic ACDC song. Right? If you say to people, particularly in Australia, name an ACDC song, it's also a long way to the top. Yeah. But the band probably only 
ridiculous, you know. I may be out a few times, but I would say 30 times would be the maximum we played it on stage. And the bands, I'm sure the bands never played it since. So you don't see it in the live DVD. Oh, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't yeah. think so. So um, yeah. So it's probably the most famous song of the bands. In fact, I've heard a couple of bootlegs of it. Uh, and we're playing it, it's almost like a Chuck Berry thing. It's really fast and it's quite different from the recording. You know? But, uh, yeah, so that, that's, that's strange. To do with it. It's never really sort of been in the live set much at all. ACDC was scheduled to play at the Sunbury Music Festival in 1975, but didn't perform after an altercation with Deep Purple. So in late 75, manager Michael Browning sent promo material to his contacts in London and in 1976, the band signed to Atlantic Records and they moved to the UK. Here we are at Mascot Airport to say farewell to ACDC. First of all, over the last six months, because we've just gone like that bang into the charts, and a lot of pop critics were su- surprised. What do, you sort of, what do you think you owe your success to? Uh, there's nothing to do with us at all. It's just our success is due to the taste of the public. Well, you've just lost me for work. <laughs> no, but I mean, it was a hard climb for a while, wasn't it? Yeah, we worked 80 bucks a night for a while, but Angus sort of, you know, put his, got his short dried up a bit and sort of like, hey, you know. So what's going to be released in, in, in the UK? It's a combination of the High Voltage and the TNT album. Together? Together. It's one album. It's one album yeah. called High Voltage. And have they chosen a single for that yet? Yeah, one way to the top. That's released today in England. Yeah? Yeah. Now, whose idea was it to put the bagpipes into, into a long way to the top? George. Sorry? George. George Young. Yeah. He just said, uh, you know, there's a, a big break in there. Uh, can you play bagpipes? Why he thought of bagpipes, I'll never know. You know? And I sort of played a bit of recorder before in fraternity and other bands, you know, and I sort of knew how to blow and finger, you know, so I just... <laughs> <laughs> what else can you say? Yeah, you know? <laughs> so I, you know, Played them. Huh? <laughs> now, it's obvious that, that, that the band itself hasn't really styled itself off anything else uh, no. as far as Australian bands are concerned. No. And it's just delivering rock and roll, hard rock and roll. Um, did that sort of gradually come as the band formed within itself? Yeah, well, um, we've always been a rock and roll band. Yeah. We, you know, like, that's always what we played. And yeah. um, that's what we always want to keep playing, that's rock yeah. and roll. Now, with the confidence of, of topping the charts in Australia now and, uh, and the success that, that this gradual follow-up that, that's happened and now it's become a, a monster in Australia, are you going over confident that you can take on an English market? Yeah, well, we are confident. Yeah. We're not overconfident, but we are very confident. The band had a tour lined up with a band called Backstreet Crawler, but the tour was cancelled due to the Backstreet Crawler's guitar player and ex-free guitarist Paul Kossoff's death at age 25 from a drug-related embolism while on a flight from LA to New York. I think I missed Paul's death in episode 13's Dead by 40. ACDC started working at the pubs in the UK and started to build a following. Then the label set up the Lock Up Your Daughters tour, which obviously was a line from their song TNT. I'm dynamite. 
Atlantic Records released the second version of High Voltage in April 76, which was a compilation of tracks with songs from the Australian High Voltage and TNT. And the second High Voltage record is the one with the white cover with Angus on the front. the band headed back to Australia to record the Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap record and that album was released in September 1976 in Australia and Europe and it wasn't released in the USA until 1981. DJ, the other day says, um, well, you know, your first two LPs or whatever have been all the same. Yeah? Is your third LP found a new direction? Have you found a, a new level? I said, yeah, the gutter level. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, who, who wants to be another you know, Mahavishnu or a yes or whatever, you know? Yeah, you know, they're painful, right? Yeah? I agree with you. Yeah. I used to say, if, if you've got a really big stereo, you know, in your lounge, you know, and you're a hippie, you know, I guess it's great. You know? But if you're, if you've got a twenty-dollar cassette player like I've got, you know? uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, we come from Australia in um, in April, you know. So that's about what seven, eight months, you know. We've been here, and no band ever from Australia has ever come here in, in seven months done as much as we have, you know. And we're just so happy that the people like us, you know. What else can you say? <laughs> you got to look for for a title first. A Title, a catchy title. You know. <laughs> like she's got balls, or something. <laughs> and then an angle, you know, of how to yeah. put. You know. I like to find an angle with it, like a two-way thing, you know. Like she's got balls. All it means to me is, yeah, you know, she's a good chick or whatever. It just means she's got a pair of knackers, you know. You know, it's not putting shit on chicks, you know. And then you just got to, like, I like to try to get every every line to have a. Uh, to be interesting in some way, not, not just to write words to fill a hole. You, know? you write all the words, do you? Yeah, I do the words. Angus and Malcolm are all the, um, you know, the, what do they call them, riffs and things, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, one the hardest thing is to come up with, the, uh, with a title that you can sort of colour, you know? Yeah. That's the hardest part. Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap had four singles, Jailbreak, Love at First Feel, which was a single only in Australia, Ride On, and the title track, Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap.
Just a funny story on Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap. In 1981, Norman and Marilyn White of Libertyville in Illinois filed a $250,000 lawsuit against Atlantic Records because they alleged that the phone number included in the song, which resulted in them receiving thousands of prank calls, was their phone number. This is the phone number. So he says 362436, then the word hey. The couple claimed that sounded like an eight, which was their phone number. ACDC then toured Europe and did a Monday night residency at the Marquee Club in London, where they broke the attendance record with over a thousand people attending each night in the 700 capacity room. They also played the Reading Festival in late August 76, before returning to Australia to rebuild their finances and record the Let There Be Rock album which was the band's fourth album. Let There Be Rock had three singles, all of which I've played in past episodes. Dog Eat Dog in episode 25, Let There Be Rock in episode 18, and Whole Lotta Rosie in episode two. And here's Malcolm's story about Whole Lotta Rosie again. You know, that went with a story was born from the, uh, when the band was just kicking around in Melbourne in the 74, early 74, and uh, we were all broke all the time. We staying in hovels and, um, and I remember Bon, you know, he, 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 he said, listen, Mal, there's a couple of girls, you know, one's a pretty, one's ugly and one's sort of cute, but she's huge. <laughs> but they've offered to make us dinner. <laughs> so we jumped back fence and then we went and uh, cut a long story short, at the end of the night after dinner and drinks, Big Rosie grabs Bonner says, right, you're mine for the night. And I run away from the other one. I, I went home and, uh, and Bon woke up in the morning, squashed against the wall. <laughs> this big girl in a single bed. And uh, so he, he, and he tried to get away and she grabbed him again. <laughs> and got, you know, got more payment for a, for a meal. So when he come back and told us, and we said, oh, we got to get a song tight like that, this one, Bob, you know? So he came up with a whole lot of Rosie. So we knocked it together pretty quick in the studio. And knocked it together in half an hour. We laid it down and in the studio pretty quick. It, just, it was just rocking, you know? So we had some music from the session before, and we felt it was really good, the music, but we never had a good lyric for it. But as soon as this Rosie thing happened, we went, there's the song for it. So we stuck it onto this backing track we had, and, uh, and that was it. Ain't no thing to start it Ain't no scare 
Let There Be Rock made it to number 19 in Australia, number 17 in the UK, 42 in New Zealand, and 154 in the US. Early 1977 saw the band back in Europe, touring with Black Sabbath. Bon Scott and Ozzy Osbourne got along great, but Malcolm had an incident with Geezer Butler that almost got ACDC thrown off the tour. Here's Angus in 2020 talking about the incident. But the thing with Geezer Butler was, you know, I, I think it was, I think they were drinking one night and um, I think Geezer was, had some knife or something he was flashing out. And, of course, he, he flashed it at Malcolm. Malcolm took it off you know, because there's the old there's a trick of that getting knives away from people. So Malcolm immediately did did that and held it in his hand. He said, "What are you going to do now?" <laughs> 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 so it was a, just a, a case of that. But uh, Malcolm thought, you know, he woke up the next day and felt bad about it. So he thought, well, because we were opening for him, we were touring for Europe. And uh, he thought, I better go and you know, you know, say sorry about the night before. And when he went there, he bumped into Ozzy, you know, and, and he was, and Ozzy said, "What are you doing here?" You know? And uh, Mal says, "Oh yeah, I can, you know, I had a bit of a run with the geezer and he's that thing and he's nice." And, he, and Ozzy says, "Him and that stupid fucking nice." You know? <laughs> <laughs> he said, "No, don't apologise, Mal. Tell him to fuck off." <laughs> Later in 1977, Mark Evans was dismissed from the band. During that period, I turned 21 years old, right? So we're in London, and the guy threw me a great, um, great, great party in in this beer uh, German beer cellar in uh, on Edgware Road. Monster of party, right? So um, the person shall rename will remain nameless at this stage, but it was someone who was a, a brother of someone who was around the band, right, come up to me and said, oh, happy birthday, mate. You know, oh, yeah, yes, that's great. It's a great party you're having here. I said, yeah, oh, that's, that's really good, you know. That's great. He said, you know, uh, so how, how come you're leaving the band? And I went, what? He said, yeah, yeah, you're, you're finishing up soon, I believe. I got told, hey, what are you fucking talking about? And then the, uh, the, uh, the member of the crew, whose brother, and he came out and said, "Hey, what, what is this?" He said, "Your, your brother's told me I'm leaving the band." And he, he said, 
So while I bailed out from the party, I said, oh, fuck this, and took off. And, and they had like a cake and happy birthday mark and all that, and I wasn't there. I, ended up, I, I got the shits, uh, went outside, caught a cab, went to the speakeasy and, and got, got myself tanked up at the speakeasy. And I ran into a couple of guys at different bands. And then I said, oh, I was happy <laughs> at a birthday party at the speakeasy with these, uh, a couple of guys from, um, what am I, my Thin Lizzy and stuff like that. Anyway, long story. But, yeah, so that that's uh, – and I, I, I just batted it off. I thought, this has got to be bullshit, you know. But um, anyway, it wasn't. But that's life, man. You know, I, I, you know, shit happens. And, and I, I think, um, yeah. And, and you asked about the actual meeting, uh, and, and it was put to me at that stage by Malcolm that they wanted to get someone in that, that, that can do backing vocals. Right. Basically, that's that's what it was. Right. Um, you know, I think it went deeper than that. And, and they said, "Well, you don't sing." You know, I, no one asked me. I actually do sing. You know, I do, do, do a voice and any band I've been, I've been doing backing vocals. Every band except ACDC. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. Although I, in TNT, I go, oi, oi, I'm on the record doing that. <laughs> but yeah, but I've got a philosophical attitude to it. You know, some people could get bent out of shape by something like that happened. But you know, I, I look back and I've just nothing but good memories. You know. A lot of love and respect for the man. Mark Evans was replaced by Cliff Williams and played two secret gigs at Sydney's Lifesavers Club in July 1977. ACDC has been, uh, you know, just, I don't know what, what, what else would I want to do. I mean, I, did it. I love the music. I love playing in the band. I'm, I'm all filled up. My role as part of the rhythm section is to give drive, to give foundation, an engine, if you like, and support the guitars. My first album with the band was Power Age, and that was 1977. I mean, it was all new and fresh, and these people, I didn't know them, and Australian, and I'm from London, and there was the whole fitting in thing. But they were great, I mean, very accepting. But they were very famous in Australia when I joined them they'd pretty much gotten to the top of the heap there very quickly and uh, they'd been to Europe once or twice at that point too but we were still touring on a modest basis you know we were playing small venues with little equipment you know with a little van and we were all driving together in a station wagon and stuff and that over the years has changed thankfully <laughs> and not to say it wasn't fun it was a hell of a lot of fun. Then the band hit America and Europe until December 1977. Then they headed home to Australia to record the Power Age album from January 78 to March 78. And the album was released on the 5th of May 1978.
The album had one single, Rock and Roll Damnation, made it to number 24 in the UK. Power Age album made it to number 22 in Australia, number 23 in the UK, and number 133 in the US. We're an album band, we're a road album band. You know, singles don't mean a pinch to anybody, you know, in our band. There's no sense in them. Like, if, if some station picks up, like the BBC, which they probably never would, you know, yeah. then um, it might get played and it might, um, might you know, make the charts, but uh, there's no way we'd do it intentionally to make a single. Well, does the same go for Australia? Oh, no, Australia's a different ma- different market altogether, mm. you know? And there, if there's a, a likely single on, on an album, it'll be released as a single, but over here the album's the main thing, you know? Mm. The rest of 1978 was spent touring Europe and America, and a live recording was made of a show at the Apollo Theatre in Glasgow, Scotland, on the 30th of April 1978, and was released as a live album called If You Want Blood, You've Got It. And she gave me her body. But she gave it to anybody. But I made a cry. And I made a scream. And I curdled her. Originally there was a greatest hits package planned called 12 of the best, but it was poo-pooed and the live record was released. Incidentally, ACDC have never released a studio best of record. They did release the Iron Man 2 soundtrack and Who Made Who records, which were soundtracks for movies using hand-picked ACDC songs, but never a best of as such. 1979 saw more touring of Europe and America, with some time off between December 78 and April 79 to record Highway to Hell in in Sydney, Miami and London with producer Mutt Lang. Here's Phil Rudd talking about Mutt Lang. Mutt was really good to work with. The guys enjoyed working with him. 
my respected Angus and Malcolm hugely, you know, what, what they were trying to do and what they wouldn't do, you know. They wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't do this. They wouldn't play, a, you know, fruity notes and make nice sounds and, you know, you know, they get on the production, the big production bandwagon and just sort of let that whole thing get lost, you know, lost and all that, you know, so. They were, you know, they were trying to keep the band, you know, a good blues-based sort of a thing. With, you know, I mean, oh, some of those earlier records sounded pretty good. You know, there was, um, there's some great guitar sounds. Holy shit! You know? Night Prowler. I mean, this has got to be one of the greatest ACDC songs of all time. There's a lot of there's a lot of, a lot of stuff out there. I guess that people have never heard because you know, it's, it's a vast catalogue we've got, and, and um, everyone has highlights. What do you remember about the Eddie Kramer sessions? Brian said that, uh, or no, Cliff said that uh, Eddie Kramer came up to you and said, "Hey, try some, try some rolls and fills and stuff." And you said, "Yeah, you got the wrong drummer there, buddy." <laughs> uh, he just wasn't the right guy, you know. I and mean, that's how I can really put it. You know, he just wasn't the right guy for ACDC. We and we were just trying to get rid of the guy, you know. But um, we managed to. You know, with, and here's Angus talking about Highway to Hell. Well, if I think back to the time, we, it's funny. When we made that album, uh, a lot of uh, the, the, the songs on that album came from... Uh, we, we had been in America, in the US, and we'd been in, uh, in uh, actually Miami in a rehearsal room. And uh, I think probably in... in uh, this may, may sound stra- strange, but uh, we went in on a like a Friday, and uh, and we had been there uh, like a couple of weeks, but like uh, one weekend we we actually we had not really done weekends. We kind of worked for the week and said, okay, we'll take Saturday and Sunday off. And uh, but this time <laughs> we actually said we'll go in on the weekend and. Uh, we, we went on Friday and came out Monday and we had all the songs ready to go. I think we had two other ideas that we had uh, uh, before that that we had worked on. Really, was only two of the tracks. One was High With The Hell. We had that one together early. And, uh, and the other one was um, Girls Got Rhythm. Highway to Hell record was released on the 27th of July 1978 and it made it to number 13 in Australia, number 8 in the UK and number 17 in the US and had three singles, Girls Got Rhythm, Touch Too Much and Highway to Hell.
There's a man there you know He's the host of the show And you'll find that he fucking hates choirs Let's move on. Oh, I won't dwell on it, but that one's wrong in so many ways. Just because you can doesn't mean you have to. Highway to Hell has now sold more than 7 million copies, ranked at number 200 in Rolling Stone's greatest 500 albums of all time. The rest of 1979 was spent touring America and Europe again, with the last show taking place on the 27th of January 1980 in Southampton in the UK. On February the 15th, 1980, Bon Scott joined Malcolm and Angus and played drums while the young brothers jammed on music for what would later be Let Me Put My Love Into You and Have A Drink On Me, which both appeared on 1980's Back In Black record. Around the same time, Bon had visited Rose Tattoo guitarist Mick Cox and they visited a French band called Trust in a London studio and they recorded a jam of the ACDC song Ride On. This is the last known recording of Bon Scott singing. said the body of 30-year-old Bon Scott was discovered by a friend who had left him in the car hours earlier. Scott was born in Scotland, but reared in Australia, where the five-man group was formed. ACDC had been based in London since 1976. A spokesman for the band's record company said he didn't know what ACDC will do without lead singer Bon Scott. For us, it was like losing a member of your family. So, uh, it's very, very difficult to go through something like that, you know, because not only is it your, um, how do you say, your friend, it's also somebody you've been close, you know, working with all that time. So it's very hard to decide what you want to do, you know, and how can you um, be respectful of the fact that the guy's been so close to you. Here's Mark Evans talking about Bond. To be in some areas a, a, a portrayal of, of, of Bond being, you know, this out of control dude, you know, and um, sure he could be, but like we, we 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 all got out of control back in those days, you know. Well, he was uh, he was our social director, you know, like he he was within the band. He, he was called the old man. He said, "What's the old man doing?" You know, because. When I joined the band, I was nineteen, and and Bon was twenty nine. Wow! So it was like it was like being being on the road with your mad uncle. You know, everyone's got a mad uncle. Yeah. Everyone that drinks too much at weddings, and it was like that. You know, it, it was just. Uh, it, it, but 
He looked like Fonzie on the outside, but inside uh, there was this, you know, a really a sort of a, you know, a bit of a hippie sort of 60s love child sort of thing in there. He was, um, it's great fun to be around, uh, an absolute gentleman. When he went, um, I've got to be honest with you, I can't say it was a surprise, but it was certainly a shock. So that ends my rabbit hole dig on ACDC up until Bon Scott's death. Bon was in ACDC for 1,963 days and they did 876 gigs and released six studio albums. Thank you so much again for listening and I will be back next week with part three of 3x3. If there's any facts or information that I got wrong in this free podcast that took me a few full weeks to piece together, please send me an email at... You must be crazy DC if you think I give a shit at gofuckyourself.cockgoblin and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. But seriously, you can follow the podcast on Instagram and Facebook, A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole Podcast. I've posted a bunch of cool ACDC stuff this week and I'll keep posting next week as well. And check out the website, arockandrollrabbithole.com for all the usual episodes, bonus episodes and some other golden magic. I'll also pop up a Spotify list of all the songs mentioned in this episode. Thanks again. Check out some ACDC. I may do the Brian Johnson years one day if anyone hears this, and I'll catch you next week. See ya.